1875, in the German city of Gotha, there was a marriage of sorts, not of people, but of parties. The Social Democratic Workers' Party of Germany, the SDAP, and the General German Workers' Association, the ADAV, combined to form the Socialist Workers' Party of Germany, or SAPD. If those names are confusing to you, then you're in good company. And honestly, don't worry about them. They're not that important. What is important is that these two parties were separate for a reason. While the SDAP is generally considered a Marxist organization and was heavily influenced by Marx himself, the ADAV espoused the ideas of its founder, Ferdinand Lassalle. Both parties were socialist, but they disagreed on a number of important concepts, principally the nature and purpose of the state. In order to form a single party together, they had to adopt a party program that represented a compromise between the two positions. This compromise came to be known as the Gotha Program, and was ratified as the party platform with only minor alterations in Gotha in 1875. However, Karl Marx found this platform unacceptable, and his line-by-line -line critique of the program was eventually published by Friedrich Engels in 1891. Today, we're going to walk you through Marx's critique of the Gotha Program and see what we can reveal about Marxism and how it differed from contemporary forms of socialism. This is We Read Theory. Hello, and welcome to We Read Theory. I'm Mark. I'm Alex. And today's episode is picking up where episode eight left off. We're going to be talking about Marxism in depth today, so if you feel like you need a bit of an overview of what Marx is all about, please give episode eight a listen. Otherwise, let's do, let's do a little leftist infighting. The Gotha Program is a short document, like two pages, and it begins by setting up some foundational beliefs that it bases its political prescriptions on. I'm going to read these all aloud, and then we're going to go back and take it line by line and talk about what Karl Marx took issue with, because he takes issue with pretty much every word of it. But um, this is the Gotha program, not the critique of the Gotha program. This right here is the Gotha program itself. Um, it's a little bit longer than this, but Marx doesn't respond to every line of it. Um, but there are seven main points in the Gotha program that Marx is concerned with. So we're going to read those in order right now, and then we'll go back to each. So, one, labor is the source of all wealth and of all civilization, and since useful labor is possible only in and through society, the proceeds of labor belong, unabridged and in equal right, to all members of society. Two, in present society, the means of labor are the monopoly of the capitalist class. The dependence of the working class flowing from this is the cause of misery and servitude in all forms. Three, the emancipation of labor demands the elevation of the means of labor to the common property of society and the cooperative regulation of the total labor of society, together with a fair distribution of the proceeds of labor. 4. The emancipation of work must be the work of the working class, opposed to which all other classes are only one reactionary mass. 5. The working class strives for its emancipation of all within the confines of the present-day national state, Conscious that the necessary result of its efforts, which is common to the working men of all civilized countries, will be the international fraternization of peoples. And that's actually, those five points make up um, part one of the criticism of the Gotha program. And then part two is devoted to this next point, 
Starting from these principles, the German Labor Party aims with all lawful means to establish the free state and socialist society, the abolition of the wage system with the iron law of wages and of exploitation in every form, and the removing of all social and political inequality. And then in part three, Marx responds to uh, point number seven, which is the German Labor Party, in order to pave the way for the solution of the social question, demands the establishment of productive cooperative associations with state aid under the democratic control of the working population. These are basically worker co-ops with state aid. Uh, the productive cooperative associations are to be called into existence in such proportions in industry and agriculture that from them will arise the socialist organization of the totality of production. So on a first glance, that all sounds pretty good from like a socialist perspective, right? Like that's all, it kind of sounds Marxist in a lot of ways. It has all the buzzwords. Yeah, it's got all, it's got all the buzzwords. It's got all the basic points. Um, labor is the source of wealth, uh, you know. Emancipation of the working class. Yeah, democratic collectivization of the means of production. Uh, but Marx takes pretty serious issue with quite a bit of what is said specifically here. So we're just going to go straight in with number one. So number one again is, Labor is the source of all wealth and of all civilization, and since useful labor is possible only in and through society, the proceeds of labor belong undiminished and an equal right to all members of society. Marx's issue with this statement is twofold. The first is that labor is not the only source of wealth. Wealth also comes from nature and natural resources, and wealth is created through the combination of those things with labor. The second is that society is not actually what makes labor useful. For example, people living in the state of nature may hunt and gather. Certainly this counts as labor, and certainly it's useful. It's actually labor that makes society possible, which then makes, the, which then makes possible the development of more useful labor and culture. But labor being the first mover is important. By reversing the order, you're actually making a capitalist argument that labor is made useful by those who supply the means of production, and you can actually justify the exploitation of the working class along those lines. So you do have to be careful with um, your language surrounding um, where wealth comes from and um, what the role of labor and other uh, resources is. Like ready, for, ready for point two? Hit me with it, bud. All right, this one's a quick one. In present society, should I say quote? Quote, in present society, the means of labor are the monopoly of the capitalist class. The dependence of the working class flowing from this is the cause of misery and servitude in all forms. End quote. The only thing I could take issue with is all misery and servitude, I guess. Um, yeah, actually, Marx's only real um, issue with this is... Uh, that it doesn't call out landowners as well as capitalists. It kind of lumps them in together. And like, I think Marx kind of gets the impression that LaSalle is holding back against landlords and is only attacking the industrial capitalist class. You know, it's tough to say uh, which is the case, but you know, specificity in your words is always good. And the way in which landlords and industrial capitalists um, interact with like production is a bit different. So. I guess yeah. a little um, clarity is always nice, especially in a political party platform. I mean, that's true. But like at the end of the day, across all these seven points, I think this one's the least important to dive well, into. Like it's comparing, comparing, you know, owners of the means of production to landlords is like comparing recyclables to garbage, you know? Yeah. At the end of the day, it's all, it's all the same shit. I do have, I do have one big question to ask you um, at the end of this. 
and it, it, that you're kind of hitting on that right now. So I want you to save those thoughts because we're we're gonna have a nice discussion about that right at the end. I will save them, store them, right. and gift wrap them for you. So point number three: quote, the emancipation of labor demands the elevation of the means of labor to the common property of society and the cooperative regulation of the total labor of society, together with a fair distribution of the proceeds of labor. I'm going to spoil it right now. Marx's main problem with this is um, a lack of specificity, and we're going to get into that. So first of all, what's a fair distribution? What are the proceeds of labor? And by the way, didn't you say in the first bit that the undiminished proceeds of labor belong equally to all members of society? Basically, these terms are just really vague and philosophical enough to be useless as an actual political platform. Let's be specific about what we want to do. There's value added as a result of labor. What exactly are we going to do with it? Well, you have to put some of it towards maintaining your industry, obviously, and you have to set aside even more if you want to expand your industrial sector. After that, consider what kind of social programs you're going to want to have. It makes much more sense to build infrastructure or provide basic services collectively, so that would have to be deducted before distributing it to individuals. And any economy will inevitably have people who don't perform useful labor. You have to provide for their survival, too. And then let's talk about that fair distribution. The first line says equal distribution. Is it fair for a society to provide equally to a worker who has a family and a worker who has no family? When we talk about communist society, we're talking about from each according to their ability to each according to their need. It follows that equal right to the proceeds of labor implies an unequal method of distribution. Marx further argues that this is the case with all rights, like how equal right to health care would necessarily mean unequal distribution of health care because everyone has different needs. You wouldn't give everyone an open heart surgery just because one person needs it. And and I, I kind of see where he's coming from with this. You Because ultimately, like when you talk about um, cooperative regulation of the total labor of society together with a fair distribution of the proceeds of labor, I mean, that's pretty vague language. I think most capitalists would consider that to to describe a, a, the system we have today. Honestly, most like a lot of people think that this is fair. A lot of people think that voting with your wallet is a form of collective regulation that's like valid. So, I find I, I think I have to agree with Marx on this one that that the language is for a political platform very um, le is leaving a lot to be desired. Yeah, I think maybe like a hundred years ago, voting with your dollar would have been legitimate before massive um conglomerates were a thing before i don't know four companies owned everything would have been a legitimate way of um voting with your dollar would have been legitimate true um, but but even then even if if you have massive wealth inequality then anyone with more dollars gets more votes and so it's an inherently unequal and like hierarchical system and it inherently has to only serve the needs of the most moneyed class. Right, yeah, but it, w it would have been more, at least more effective than it is today. Certainly. Um, at the same time, in terms of distribution, one of the most common things I hear is that um, it's like like people, when they become like a manager, director, like moving up in a hierarchy, it's because they're smart and they, and that their education, their training translates to you know, they, they've, they've earned that money, not because they're putting in necessarily more work, just because, I don't know, it's, it's this magical, um, 
variable of experience and know-how and yeah, productivity. Yeah, and education and productivity. When in reality, they don't put in any more hours in a day than anyone else normally. But the thing is, they're not doing no work, right? They just don't do. Jeff Bezos doesn't do thirty-three thousand times as much work as the employees in his factories, but he earns that much. Yeah, and that's not even like really. That's not even really like something that 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 like the owning class tries to hide because Jeff Bezos gets a salary of about $2 million a year. I think it's a little bit less than that from Amazon. So even, even assuming that like the market system for determining the value of labor is a valid way of doing it. And it's like accurate, even assuming that um, it's, it's, it's baked into the, the very bones of the system that Jeff Bezos is fundamentally not paid the lion's share of what he owns of, of, of the wealth that he has, uh, for his labor. Like we, and yeah, and we, and we, of course, we discussed that, um, a little bit more in depth in, uh, last episode, episode eight. So, um, I want to move on to, uh, part, point four. Absolutely. All right. Quote, the emancipation of work must be the work of the working class opposed to which all other classes are only one reactionary mass. Unquote. Marx is very much associated today with the idea that there are only two classes, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. We saw last episode that Marx actually had a much more nuanced view of classes. Besides the bourgeoisie, you have rural peasants and the lower middle class, and these are not proletarians, but they're quickly being lumped in with them over time as capitalism develops. It's not really accurate to label them along with the bourgeoisie as one reactionary mass, because in the long run, uh, ultimately their class um, identity is going to be closer to that of a proletarian um, than to that of a bourgeoisie. But uh, it's also not necessarily fair to lump them in with the proletariat directly right now. Um, and th- th- this always gets me, it always gets me kind of talking about stuff like this because you say rural peasants to people and, they're, and, and, and they roll their eyes at you, right? And they say, um, like, this, this, is an, this is an ideology that doesn't apply uh today at all like we're talking about peasantry here like how many americans are peasants today um but i think that there's a case to be made that um even though they're not like industrial workers that like urban like service workers are certainly part of the proletariat i think that they share um most of the important qualities that marx outlines for them they don't own the means of production at all they're concentrated in very high population centers and even though they aren't concentrated with, well, I mean, technically, like if you work at a McDonald's, the McDonald's itself is the means of production. So really, they are concentrated alongside very high concentrations of means of production. So even though they're not technically industrial workers, I think it's still fair to call them proletarians. Yeah, I mean, what when I when you say rural peasant, I think of towns like sort of like the one I grew up in, with like five hundred to a thousand people, mm-hmm. absolute maximum. Those aren't concentrated, I would say. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and, and it's not the peasants that are associated with concentration. Although, um, pe- I mean, peasant is kind of a complicated word, right? Because there's all this, like, feudal, there's all these feudal implications of the word peasant. Yeah, I don't like that. I think they, somebody needs to come up with, um, a new international version. Of this. I mean, at this point, I'm, I, I consider, um, there are, there are farm owners who are bourgeoisie and people who work on them, and those people are proletarians. Oh, absolutely. Dude, there's, my half of my family is farmers and they have 
tractors and farm equipment worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. My, my guy has, um, my, my uncle in, I think it's Kansas. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't even sit in his tractor when like fields are being like tilled, plowed, planted, whatever. It's remote controlled. And over the last two centuries, the pattern that we've seen in the long run has been a, uh, a concentration of land into fewer and fewer hands. And, and, um, the owner, with the ownership of that land comes the requisite ownership of all the equipment that you need to work it. And so, um, really we are actually seeing exactly what Marx predicted, which is that concentration of the means of production into fewer hands and a broadening of the proletariat. Yeah. And I think an important, um, Review to be included in the proletariat that I hope people think of, but I don't think people often think of are seasonal migrant workers mm-hmm. who can't be concentrated because they follow, they go around the U.S. following what crops are in season. They're a nece- very necessary part of the economy. And I think um, a lot bigger portion of the voting class is them and people of the same similar socioeconomic status, including um, undocumented immigrants that are a very important, you know, voting block and a very important class to pay attention to. Did I just catch you shilling for electoralism on my socialist podcast, Alex? Mark, I'm so sorry. Please don't send me <laughs> to, to Gulag. Um, okay, point number five. Quote, The working class strives for its emancipation of all within the confines of the present-day national state, conscious that the necessary result of its efforts which is common to the working men of all civilized countries, will be the international fraternization of peoples, end quote. I like the international fraternization part. Alex. What's up? I'm going to level with you. This is some lib shit. What this line is saying is essentially that the revolution needs to begin within a single nation with the ultimate goal of being, uh, of it becoming a global revolution. Marx says that this is ridiculous. The economies of nations are already deeply intertwined. The bourgeoisie already exerts its will globally. Yes, the actions of a revolutionary movement in its infancy may occur within a nation, but any revolution is a global revolution. And this is especially true for a nation like Germany, where Marx lived, where changes in its economy necessarily have global ramifications. So the revolution must always be considered an international effort, even if it's the events of it are happening for a time just in one country. And it's really, really important to understand that the revolution is always international, not just ultimately. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. With like the increasing globalization of trade, yeah. oligarchs will own these politicians that set up protections to support their corporations. And, you know, across the world, it, owners of companies are in cahoots with each other to make sure their markets stay propped up. Exactly. So why wouldn't we be also showing each other the same solidarity? You've got you've got um you know big business in America cooperating with um you know bankers in the Cayman Islands to avoid paying taxes. So yeah, the 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 anti-revolution is already always in full swing and that's an international effort. And so only an international revolution can take that down. Which is a tall order, I have to say. So let's get on to um, our second, our penultimate point, number six. Quote, starting from these principles, the German Labor Party aims with all lawful means to establish the free state and socialist society. 
the abolition of the wage system with the iron law of wages and of exploitation in every form, and the removal of all social and political inequality, unquote. So, you know, that all sounds pretty good. We talked about that earlier. Well, we're going to need a little bit of background on the iron law of wages to understand where Marx is coming from criticizing this. The iron law of wages is really just LaSalle's version of the regular law of wages, which posits that wages will trend towards the bare subsistence of the worker. What makes the iron law uniquely LaSallean, according to Marx, is that LaSalle based his formulation of it in Malthusian population theory. And uh, Malthusianism, or Malthusian population theory, is basically the idea that population growth is always potentially exponential, whereas productive growth is linear. So population always has the ability to outpace production, and should this situation arise, the result is suffering on a mass scale and something called a Malthusian uh, catastrophe, like a war or a plague that would ultimately call the population back to a um, more sustainable level. Malthusianism is completely incompatible with Marxism because Marxism is based in part on the idea that we actually have the material capabilities to provide a decent life for all people, whereas Malthusianism uh, argues that our population always has the potential to outpace production, and therefore expanding production will only raise the population rather than change the standard of living in a positive way. The upshot of this line of thinking is essentially that Poverty, for the majority of people, is just a law of nature, rather than manufactured, which would make socialism kind of a pointless pursuit. Marx also opposes the inclusion of the iron law of wages at all, mainly because the law is only concerned with how high wages are, and risks framing the problem with wage labor as a matter of wages being too low, rather than how a Marxist would frame it, where wages are inherently exploitative. Once again, libshit. That was a beautiful conclusion, Mark. That was very poetic. It always comes back. To, it's literally the only criticism that socialists can make. Like nine times out of ten, it's just like calling people liberals. But it's true. <laughs> Everyone's a, everyone really is a liberal except us. That thank God for that. You know, I mean, I also uh, have to ask just really quick, just yeah. for some clarification for our viewers and a little bit for myself. Um, so, the conclusion to take is wage increases are isn't a win because labor is fund labor for wages is fundamentally exploitative it depends on what you mean by win right like it's it's undeniably an improvement in the lives of the workers so is a win the ending of the exploitation or the letting up of the exploitation it's really uh so you know you're making lives better for the workers but you're not removing the source of their exploitation so um it really just depends on your definition of the word win. It's certainly not a complete win. So, yeah, and I just wanted to clarify real quick. When we say wage, we mean a fixed payment given to you on a regular basis, not determined by the actual profits of your work, yeah, but by someone above you telling you how much your labor is worth and then dividing it nominally unequally. And the fact that it's based not directly on the profit is the source of that exploitation because that allows profit to outpace your wages. And that difference between the two is the number value that you can basically apply to uh, your monetary exploitation. Yeah. And I'd like to point out minimum wage has not been raised since 2008. And if we were to track it based on inflation, it would have doubled by now. Yeah. 
I mean, at this point, yeah, at this point, even 15 is, is, is not really sufficient. It is not. All right. We got one major point left and then I have my big question for you. So number seven, quote, the German labor party in effort to pave the way for the solution of the social question demands the establishment of productive cooperative institutions with state aid under the democratic control of the working population. The productive cooperative associations are to be called into existence in such proportions in industry and agriculture that from them will arise the socialist organization of the totality of production, unquote. Let's talk role of the state in Marxism. As we remember from our discussion on Lenin's state and revolution, the state in Marxist parlance is specifically a tool of class oppression. The idea that co-ops established with state aid can lead to full socialization of production, no matter how, what, what number of them you establish at once, is ludicrous. Co-ops are only useful insofar as they create power bases for the workers outside of the state. The only way to end class oppression is to, in Lenin's words, smash the existing state and replace it with a different form of social organization that doesn't promote class oppression. And in this sense, while it kind of exerts power in a state-like way, it ceases to be a state because it isn't enforcing class oppression. In short, Marx thinks that relying in any material way on state aid will ultimately make socialism impossible because preventing the end of class oppression is the fundamental role of any state. And that's pretty much everything I had uh, written on the critique of the Gotha program. There is a little bit on child labor that I that I that that is interesting, but I, I want to get to the big question before we before we talk real quick about that. Alex, I want to. Is this all just like kind of dumb bullshit nitpicking? Is this really necessary? Is, is this criticism like really productive and like necessary? I think so. I think so. I think a lot of um, political platforms are really superfluous and don't get into specifics. And I think this would also apply a little bit today as just like um, a socialist critique of the policies of the popular American left. Mm -hmm. I think it definitely has merit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I like that it stresses complete... Um, I don't know how to say it other than complete unreliance on, on state aid. Um, I like how it prioritizes revolution over mm -hmm. reform. Yeah, I think that, I think that, that, um, trying to create power bases outside of state power is, is super duper important. And I, I think that, I don't know that I think that like, every single piece of critique in this is like super duper necessary like like we talked about like the whole landowner um capitalist distinction like i don't know that that distinction it certainly wouldn't hurt the party platform is it a big deal no but then again the fact that marx chose to include it in the in the critique doesn't necessarily mean that he thinks it's like a life or death decision um but you know i don't know that that's super duper important but like when he talks about the vagueness in the language surrounding fair distribution, um, equal distribution, proceeds of labor, I do think that a party platform needs to be more um, specific on points like that. I also like that it gives a little, like when 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 people um, issue socialism as a legitimate 
form of organization, you know, this, this addresses some of their concerns, right? They're like, bosses do do work mm -hmm. and they need to be compensated for that. Correct. There are administrative costs involved with producing any good that need to be compensated for. Of course, you're absolutely right. But is it that much more? And should the people working under them, you know, not be compensated um, in indirect correlation with the returns of their labor? No, of course they should, right? These, I feel like natural questions would have been asked. Like he, he's reading it as someone who would ask these natural questions. He was addressing. Them. Yeah, it's 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 hard for me to um, guess at what my questions would have been uh, reading the Gotha program in full because I actually, as most people do when getting into Marx, they I read the critique of the Gotha program before I actually read the Gotha program itself. So um, all the questions were kind of laid out for me uh, ahead of time, but. I do tend to imagine that that reading that what was it? I think it was part four no part yeah part three uh, where Marx really hones in on that lack of specificity I, I I think I would have had a lot of the same questions like what the hell are you talking about exactly so I want to talk child labor with you real quick my favorite because Marx has a bit of a hot take, actually, on child labor. Oh. I know you read some of my notes earlier, so you might be uh, partially aware of this. But um, part of the party platform was the abolition of all child labor and mandatory schooling under state authority. So we know Marx has a problem with the state getting to control um, um, education. No surprises there. Obvious Marxist stuff. Does not like the state. But Marx is also not entirely against child labor. Now, he finds the capitalist institution of child labor totally unacceptable, you know, but but the idea that there are there are ways in which you could have children contribute useful labor to uh, the productive capacity of society in ways that are specifically designed for children to do, that are made very safe, that, you know, are not, like, particularly, like, taxing and are, and, and can be don't require like a lot of discipline necessarily to do and that they could be part of children's um education is actually taking part in the productive process from a very young age um i'm like you know is this like household chores with extra steps it's kind of like it's kind of like social household chores like on a societal level kind of um so i guess i guess when you i guess when you when you compare them to chores i guess i don't necessarily think it's like the craziest thing but i tend to believe that kids are better off in their childhood when given a lot of room to express themselves independently and make their own decisions and so uh while like i do obviously think that there are mandatory responsibilities that kids need to have uh like i do think that schooling and education should be mandatory for kids um regard whether it's state or not um i don't know I really like I don't I don't really know how I feel about that take. I do get a little squeamish um around child labor apologism even though it's not capitalist child labor apologism. I mean, I feel like if it's like a small amount of community service like like keeping keeping a cert, like a um keeping a public place clean or something mm -hmm. like that, this to me isn't the um 
having children go into fix certain machinery because they're really small. Yeah. Like, no, yeah, but it's more like your dad saying, "Get a fucking job." I don't think, yeah, I I never got the impression that Marx is in favor of anything that would put children in danger or would like, yeah, that'd be, be super antithetical to everything else he says. Make not sense. I know that I know that like in Japan in particular, um, that there's that reputation where like children, where like school children are expected to, um, do like the cleaning of like their own classrooms and their own learning spaces, and I actually do think that that's um. A positive um I, I do think that, that that that's a positive influence it's kind of there's something kind of socialist in it in the sense that like we think that workers are more motivated when they have a personal stake in the production that they're taking a part in in a way that they don't as wage laborers and in the same way you've got um when when kids are are responsible for the cleanliness of their learning spaces then um that's work that they might take more pride in because and and, and take more initiative on because they are ultimately the ones that reap the benefits of their own labor. Yeah. I feel like this I, I feel like this is um a natural extension of Teddy Roosevelt's Civilian Conservation Corps, which is wasn't wasn't mandatory, but it was um a way for I think young men to earn money supporting a nationalized parks program. You know, cleaning them up and building them for I don't know, human casual exploration you know or this would this might could be i think extrapolated into pete Buttigieg's idea for a national service program but a mandatory one yeah which did which did freak me out a little bit i wasn't a big fan of that well you know what the thing is is that is that is that um it, it kind of falls in the same category as like that national mandatory education program where it's like having like robust systems to organize people to pro either provide services to them or to or to get them to provide services to the society are not necessarily bad things but it's when they fall under that bourgeois state control um that that you just can't fucking trust that shit yeah like um would i want to be like it's in the same way where i remember i remember in one of the earlier debates uh that Julian Castro talked about like the South American Marshall Plan, and I was like, you know, like I think we do owe it to um, Central and South America to like kind of aid in their development. But I don't trust the U.S. government to handle that program at all, because look, what we do with the IMF is really just neo-colonialism, and I don't know that I trust a program like that to be anything different. We've already given we as a country have already given Central and South America the greatest gift of all. Wider profit margins. Yeah, the squashing of any legitimate revolution or any real movement to bring about real change. And they honestly aren't thankful enough for that. I think I think they're a little ungrateful. Alex, as always, with the best takes. Fiery hot um, takes. Yeah, you got one. anything else to say on this? Yeah, child labor isn't exploitative enough. I think I think the they they haven't lived very long, you know. They haven't developed that many hobbies. Uh, they're very uh, expendable. Yeah. Um. Do you want to plug the social medias and then we can uh, finish right up? Oh, perfect. So we are on Twitter at We Read Theory Pod. You can reach out to us with any episode suggestions or comments, questions, concerns about um, previous episodes that have come out. 
We are also now on YouTube, uh, We Read Theory Pod. If YouTube is your preferred listening method and you're just tired of listening to us on Spotify, Breaker, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, whatever, feel free to listen to us there. Add us into your watch later. Um, do it, do it while you're, I don't know, doing other stuff. Have us on the background. And uh, for those of you that left us positive reviews on Apple Podcasts, we really, really, really appreciate those. Those are actually, if you want to support the show at this point in time, leaving us positive reviews on Apple Podcasts is probably um, the single best thing that you can do for us. That really helps our um, like impressions and it helps like whatever algorithms are, 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 are putting our episodes out there. So those of you who've already um, reviewed us, thank you so, so much. Um, and that's pretty much everything I got to say. Yeah, feed my ego. I'm insecure. I need to be told that I'm doing a good job. All right. Yeah, as always, we love you guys. Thanks for listening, guys.